about the current state of music. My name's Six Foot Stereo. I'm a DJ and producer, amongst other things. If this is your first time visiting, then you're very welcome along. And if you've listened to some of the others, then uh, welcome back. So this is my attempt to find out what's going on in the music industry, how artists are feeling about it, how record labors are feeling about it and related industry people. Just to see what's going on, to sort of check. It's like a litmus test, really. To maybe provide some inspiration to anyone hoping to get into the music industry or For people that have been following it for years and wondering where it's at right now. It's kind of for me as well. Trying to carve a niche in it myself. And uh, obviously interested to know if there is space for me. So the subject of this one, he probably doesn't know this, or he certainly does now, but he pretty much curated my record buying for a period. Mark Ray has had a big influence on the music that I was listening to, the music I continue to listening to, my DJing and production, so I've taken a lot of inspiration from his releases, either that's his own work or the work he put out through his label Grand Central, I've bought records in his record shop that used to be called Fat City. 
and I've followed many of those artists to this current day. So it was an absolute delight when uh, he responded to my request to do this. When he responded really positively and said he was well up for it. And uh, I must thank his wife for taking their little one out on a bit of a cold day in January to the park to give us a bit of time to record this. And for Mark himself for being really candid and open with his thoughts and opinions. And really getting the idea of what I'm trying to get to and helping me make this interview as interesting as it could possibly be. So it's an absolute pleasure to give you Mark Ray. Okay, so introducing myself, yes? Introducing yourself. Yeah. Hi, this is Mark Ray, and I'm an artist, first and foremost, um, renowned for, I suppose, uh, in order, DJing initially, then a shop called Fat City Records, then a record label called Grand Central, then as an artist, as Rain Christian, um, and more recently, I... Um, I've expanded my artistry into writing, and I'm currently writing my first novel. So as with all these episodes, the first thing I like to do is to go back to the beginning and find out about their earliest memories of music yeah so I was born in 68 so I suppose um, there was still you know if you're listening to Radio 1 you'd still um, hear um, the odd Beatles track played as part of a playlist which is unusual and my father liked um, a few of their tracks Um, you know all that sort of weird glam rock that was around at the time Bowie my dad was very my, my father's called Thomas so Major Tom, you know, it was like that song was speaking directly to my father. So um, he loved that, and uh, that was a good choice to make uh, as regards David Bowie's artistry. So yeah, there was a lot going on. Um, disco, my, my parents um, were really loved dancing, um, and uh, therefore were really into disco. So um, a very energetic household that loved music, and I think that gave me the sense of how powerful and important music is um, to get you high, basically. My dad used to smack the steering wheel of the car when, like, Mr. Blue Sky would come on, you know, um, by ELO. That sort of stuff. And then, obviously, the next point is when music becomes something more. There's a key change in in almost all humans' uh, lives, and that's called puberty. And I think really um, that um, releases so many chemicals um, as you be- start to become, a, you know, an adult that uh, you- you're being set up to have um, emotions that are, uh, you know, for the opposite sex or the same sex if you're that way inclined, and therefore you program 
experiences of life and particularly music that link to those experiences very deeply. So for me, I can always remember um, getting a, a compilation album of The Smiths that had like all of the, the, the Smith songs of the time and, and listening to it I, with my back against the dining um, cabinet with headphones on. So I was starting to absorb music internally on my own in headphones, which I'd done a, a little bit when I was a little bit younger, but now it sort of became a little bit more obsessively listening to a whole album in its entirety through these large big 70s headphones. I then started to collect um, the odd record. I'd, I'd buy it myself. So Thomas Dolby's The Golden Age of Wireless, massive record for me. Uh, the Best of the Jam was a massive record for me. Um, and I'd sit and play miniature snooker upstairs uh, in my bedroom and put these records on like a lot of people did. So you were doing something while you were listening to this great music. But you know, if I think about that music there, you had the sort of um, songwritery rocky edge of the jam and then with Thomas Dolby that was really like a warning sign for samplers and electronic music so I think it had a a big impact on me that album and I still love it um, now The Golden Age of Wireless by Thomas Dolby it's a very important album in music history So I was quite interested to find out if at school he received any kind of training or lessons in music or musical instruments. No, and um, I may refer to my book a few times, but I did an autobiography and in that I describe a story where I went from a rough school um, or rougher school in Cramlington in the northeast, which is the northeast, the, actually Europe's biggest new town, so like all these box houses. Um, and I don't really think we did anything in music lessons of any note. Um, and, then, and then I moved to, to a slightly posher school in Pontealand, which is near Newcastle Airport. And um, I arrived there just before the harvest recital and um, everyone could play instruments and would all play recorders and stuff. Uh, and I couldn't play anything. So they put me in the middle holding a tin of beans while everyone played their recorders. And it was, uh, it, was a, it was a funny feeling. I've, in a way, that was, that was my beginning to being an outside. I found the idea of being bothered to learn any instrument just completely pointless, um, if, if I'm thinking back. I think I didn't want to do it, and I didn't have any urges to learn an instrument. And I wasn't forced by my parents because they couldn't play any instrument, so I, I skipped that one completely. Drawn to the love of the of the depth of what music could do by con contact, um, you know, connecting with emotions, uh, and then once I re realised I was born in the era of samplers and sampling, it was a real excitement because I could then, with no musical knowledge, start making um, montages of of stuff, and and I was born into that uh, era with tape decks, which I know that people like Mr. Scruff and Andy Votel from the Northwest North and my previous history, but basically probably every kid in the world in the 80s was doing triple cassette. Not every kid, but you know, every kid who was interested enough was getting three cassette players and looping 
the effects of a drum break being copied on pause button mixing, we, we would call it. So, you, you know, that gives you a strange power when you can take, um, first of all, it's rewarding your choice of, of choosing um, what drum breaks to loop, then what you can put on, then suddenly like you've got an ownership in the art that you're making. And I think that was, you know, gave me such a buzz that basically once I was into that area, it was something that I wasn't like practicing or, or you gotta do this, it was just something I was so obsessed with once I got into it, that I'd never really left it behind. I wanted then to find out whether the music production started before or after the DJing or whether they just went hand in hand. They happened, they happened simultaneously. So as I, it's, it's so weird to think that I just had one little, you know, those cheap record boxes that were made out of plastic covering cardboard and they had the two clips on the front that everyone would have and you could put maybe say 50 records in there. I can remember when I'd filled that and I think I, I made, you know, I did a, a gig in, in, in Newcastle when I was 18 um, and we, we, we booked a, a, a nightclub called Manhattan's on a Wednesday night and literally there was only four people in there and they were my friends and they sniffed poppers and they got thrown out so I was in there on my own DJing to nobody and I, I absolutely loved it because I was it was like saying hey you know do you want to play the music that you love really loud so you know if you think about that journey you know you, you think well a DJ would be like oh I'm not, you know I'm not DJing to anyone it's not giving me a buzz but that was a massive buzz I was playing go-go um, you know early hip-hop even it, it was probably the, around early house time as well then so there's all that going on and to me it was like a lot of people's stories, all that stuff was there. So I've found before that some people have a strong artistic vision right from the start. And some people kind of happen upon these things and make the most of those opportunities. So I was wondering, given the massive output amongst everything he's done, did he have a vision from the start? I think I might disappoint you with regards trying to answer the question as, you know, did I have an artistic vision from the start? Now, I think if I did, I would have either been one, extremely more successful than I am now, or two, be working as an accountant or something, having realised that it, that it wasn't going to work. I think a lot of artists are fantasists, and basically they have a... F and this is why we call them the, pun the general public is attracted to them. It's because they make choices to live in an ulterior world um, where they believe and are prepared to sacrifice things like <laughs> earning money or, you know, being sensible about things. I mean, really for me, I wanted to avoid all of that.
it's like taking things back. I think his first endeavour was into Fat City, a legendary shop in Manchester. Certainly there's a portion of my record collection that comes from there. So I wanted to know about the start of that. It wasn't my idea to start a shop. It was my um, partner in the shop originally, Ed Pitt, um, who I still, all the guys I started, like Dave Walker in Manchester as well, I see and I'm friends with them all still now. But Ed, it was Ed Pitt's idea. He said, hey, Mark, why don't we start a shop? Because we'd had a variety of successful clubs in Manchester. And um, I said, yeah, M- more as a sense of, I was going to carry on doing club promotion, but this was a more solid idea, you know. Then we do the shop. I'm talking to people who are buying drum albums, which I'm ordering and using to sample at home. And then suddenly you've got this before you, the shop becomes a magnet for everyone who is like-minded and making music in similar ways. So Mr. Scruff, Andy Votel, AIM, Only Child, and it's a community of people who are living in, in semi-similar ways. They're, they're not doing run-of-the-mill jobs and they're committed to, to making beats, as we would call it back then. You know, we borrowed money from the, the, the bank backed up by the Department of Trade and Industry to start the shop, right? They gave us seven and a half grand and if we, if we went bankrupt, the Department of Trade and Industry would cover 75% of it. So you can see that's what it was doing is that we want to stimulate the economy and if you, Mr. Lloyd's bank or whoever, well, it was Lloyd's, but yeah, no, we will pay it. We, so take the risk on these kids. And it was, I think it was through the Prince's Youth Trust. So that's a major help there. Then suddenly there's another excuse not to get a proper job. But because we were, we, we were adding culture, but we knew that because, you know, through the clubs, we had all these kids um, and students who we had been ourselves and we were playing hip-hop, soul, ragga, street soul, dance hall, gar- you know, early garage, the American kind. And um, meanwhile, the house explosion in Manchester was just was just doing the drug thing. But we stayed on that, and that's why both Fat City and Grand Central became something different out of Manchester. Because in, you know, the guys who, when we were doing it, we, we had this eclectic vision and were into, you know, hip-hop and soul and reggae and and that side of it. Um, I mean, I'd call it, it's black music, basically. I mean, so is house music as, music as well, but there was a distinct difference because the clubs that we ended up doing, um, we went out of our way to, attra- to attract the local black populace, you know, because we ended up kind of creating a, a cultural homogenous whole um, and that was also what was exciting because it was not the norm of, of life outside. <clears throat> it's hard to imagine what it was like unless you were there, but the, it was a very different world, you know. The, um, there wasn't a BBC One Extra. Radio One didn't play any um, club black music. It was a completely different subgenre and sect that you would get through record shops. Um, you know your classic ones in Soho in London, um, your, your, your shops in Manchester, and it was like these environments um, 
were culturally deep and you had to put effort into it. Um, and I'm talking about it talking about it in this way because of what we'll get onto later, which is obviously what the internet's done, which is both excellent and also destructive. But yeah, I think um, in answering the question about you know where my artistic drive is, is that it, it kind of became also for me a socio-political drive, um, and I'm happy to say that because I can reflect back on who I was then and know that that was definitely part of the makeup. wasn't entirely clear to me what led from one thing to the next so we found out that Fat City was the first venture then I wanted to know how things then happen with Grand Central and then him becoming an artist in Ray and Christian and from then on Okay, so so the time frame was, so we were doing we were doing lots of clubs for quite a few years between the the time 1989 till 93, so that's four years there of pretty much just clubs. Then Ed said, let's start a record shop. So we started Fat City. Within a year and a half of working at Fat City, it had expanded three times because people liked it so much. And also at the time, nobody else was selling hip hop street soul and all the samples that were being used in hip-hop at the time plus rare groove you know it was a very different record buying public in manchester so we'd we'd found a niche okay and it, and it allowed us to expand which is great but i got sick of it after 18 months because it was just really hard work to watch all this music come through the door that that was sampling stuff that i had at home and I just thought, if if this is the opportunity, I'm going to take all of the tape editing and the, the the need for a sampler, and go down the route of of, of starting a record label and being an artist. Because and the first maneuver was I released a, an EP by Tony D, which wasn't me. I didn't have to make any music then. It was me being an A and R on a record label person. So I, the way I saw it is that having met a sort of mental block in the shop quite quickly I thought no I want more than this so really that's that's the ego talking if you want to get to the bottom of this that's the ego saying no we can do but we can we can do this I, I found myself in this position where 
I was getting the, 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 the first releases for Grand Central um, manufactured down south, but sort of the production was, was organised by, um, by the, a company called Pure, and they were in Manchester, so I would take the DATs and they would send it down there, but then it became, once they'd, they'd say, Mark, you've got 2012 inches there and they're in Dagenham, um, you know, they want to know if you want them delivering or you should pick them up, and, and I realised how expensive it was. So what I did is I moved to London so that I could pick up all of the first pressings and then drive them around the shops. So basically, what I was doing was that I was not really... I didn't really have any roots, so I wasn't committed um, to anything other than music. So if music demanded that I move to London, so I moved to London and lived in someone's cupboard and went around picking up all of the 12 inches and EPs and delivering them round um, round the London shops um, and also, the, and this is a key point, the export distributors. So I'd take 100 records um, so not far from where we're sat here in West London today on the North Circular. There's, a, there's places near Wembley and, you know, I'd go in and, and I'd have 100 uh, Grand Central 12 inches and um, oh, I have 1,000 in the car, actually. I'd say, how many do you want? They say, oh, we'll have 200. And then they pick up the phone and ring Japan um, or, you know, France and Germany. But if the time was right, they'd, they'd, they'd ring places far off and they could hear them selling selling five, you know 18 to this one shop in Japan and then 20 in France um, 100 to this German distributor so it was really like trading Mark is probably best known for is his work as one half of Ray and Christian. Whose albums were massive. So I wanted to take that back to the beginning and find out more about that collaboration. Well, the first time we ever worked together, just for the train spotters, we did a thing called Fat City FC, like communication, which is still a good tune now, actually, um, which sampled Weather Report, and that was the first ascent. That was the first time Rain Christian worked together because it was me bringing the samples in and the drum breaks, and then Steve using his musicality to make it all work. And then we. Um, started doing tunes as Ryan Christian and on Central Heating obviously we had Spellbound on there the first version of it and a track with Texas I mean which came from remixes so what happened is what so once we started creating a little bit of noise with these 12s that I was sending out to everyone people who were into them you know kept in touch with me and then I got asked by the guy who was the editor of The Face whose girlfriend was Charlene Spateri He'd heard a Nightmares on Wax remix and then the Far Side remix that we did and he said, oh, do you want to do some production? And yeah, that led um, to just an explosion of possibility because 
Next thing, I'm on a platinum album, and we're about to do Northern Sulfuric Soul, you know, and that was obviously the the period where everything really fell in fell in beautifully for us. Everybody we asked to work with said yes and did good material, and we remixed them in return, and yeah, just really, really got a, a lot of momentum about it, and it seemed like we were doing something that there was um, unique and people, you know, were into it. So it was a good, good experience. And then after after that happened, it just became a totally different experience with regard to the business side of it and the artistic side of it. And really, you'd probably say that once you've been successful, things become more of a science. And also the stresses on me and at some point wheels are going to come off. And that's every artist's um, story, I think, really, in a way. wondering with all this going on what happened or what had to give what happened with Fat City um, and Grand Central was that I just left the shop and I actually gave my shares over to the guys and just said look because for me mentally I just wanted to only have one focus but they, they were like brother and sister or brothers in business in the sense that we did a nightclub that used all of the things that were going on with both Fat City became a compilation album which I helped occasionally um, either do a remix or get tracks for and it was all just like a scene you know um, but business wise I had to focus on Grand Central because that was going to take all of my effort and you asked there you know what was it like to be a business owner, a manager of people, an A&R manager, a DJ, a promoter. It was absolutely insane and really unbalanced because what I did is I just did my whole life. It was a lifestyle and it was wonderful, but it was also one of those things where, you know, you can't do that forever. And uh, we, we, you and I were discussing before about when you do gigs out of town or in different countries and it's great fun doing the gig but then you're on your own afterwards and I spent a lot of my time in that period on my own DJing to promote Grand Central and survive as well but yeah it's not not always what it seems but it was a really really special time for all the people around those two businesses because it was a community you know and it it was a lot of fun Down for us, we get down, down for us, we get down, no doubt. 
y'all can step with. Step one. Step two. Step three. Step four. Step one. Step two. Step three. Step four. Do the smurf, do the wild baseball bat. Rooftop like we bring an 88 back. Hustlers. Gangsters. Hustlers. Gangsters. Do the smurf, do the wild baseball bat. Rooftop like we bring an 88 back. Hustlers. Gangsters. Hustlers. Gangsters. Down for Oz, we get down. Down for Oz, we get down, no doubt. Down for Oz, we get down. So I'm always interested to find out how the internet affected the business and as we know Grand Central doesn't exist today and I'm always interested to know if the internet was the downfall of the record label or whether whether it had run its course or or whether there are other factors that sort of brought it to an end whether voluntarily or kind of through fate it's interesting so I mean can I, also, I can always remember Napster sending us Napster communicated directly with Grand Central when we were still going because I think they'd been through their rigmarole and now they were trying to go into what would have been something similar to iTunes or you know um, that was going on so you know we, there we were we were sat um, having expanded on all this successful music but the, the simple reason that the label um, couldn't function anymore was because um, Steve um, went on break, which meant there was no Rain Christian, um, and AIM was very slow at delivering music, so he waited years, and by the time you know he did his next album, the, the label had gone under, because basically people had their own agendas and they're totally entitled to them, but the reality is, is that I was left in a situation where I couldn't, uh, I didn't have the materials and to keep the success going. And when you choose to do things out of love in art, you, you're choosing to do them. The public's not ch- choosing to make, if the public's not choosing to make you successful, it's, uh, it, it, it's your fault. No matter, no matter which way you put it, you're either unlucky, but okay, make yourself luckier. Or it's not just not going to happen, mate. And we sort of got to that position where everything I tried um, with the subsequent albums after those hit ones didn't sell enough people went on sabbatical stuff wasn't done and I had to start you know taking the business apart one person at a time by making everyone redundant who was around me and then eventually just when that was reaching a point where it was just like a house of copyrights the MCPS came in and said we're going to audit you for your entire history and then they came back and they said, oh, you owe us, you know, 30 grand for this. And there was a 10, you know, it ended up being 80 grand. And they said, we want it, we want it in three months. And I said, well, at the moment, I'm, you know, the business is struggling financially. If you, if you make this demand of me, I'm going to have to liquidate. And they, they didn't answer back. So basically, when the next time they came, I just liquidated the company. And all the copyrights that I'd spent 11 years and then a 17-year journey of effort was lost.
How does an artist, businessman, take a blow like that? And find the energy to come back and make more music in a changing landscape and find the energy to do that. I was so um, put off doing record labels anyway that even if it was worth doing, I wouldn't have done it again. But I did still try to do Yes King, which um, was an act with myself and Reese Adams. And we did an album. And just as we went to release it, the distributor who'd manufactured it on a P&D deal, production and distribution, um, went bankrupt. So my own company went bankrupt, then I spent uh, a lot of time making an album, some of it in Jamaica, and then that went bankrupt and we lost that album. So it was, it was literally like I, was, I went from having an awful lot of self-made activity and positivity going on to then having all of this stuff collapsing around me. Um, and in America, we tried, I did eventually release the Yes King album, but it was just, you know, <clears throat> I didn't have the structure of a record label anymore. Also, time and fashions were in a different place at the time, and the internet wasn't really... I mean, the internet, I did then take all of the copyrights that I owned, Rain Christian, Yes King, and Mark Ray solo albums, and I drove from Los Angeles, where I'd emigrated to, to San Francisco to go to a company called IODA, the Independent Online Distribution Alliance, who was subsequently bought by The Orchard, who are similar to iTunes, or not iTunes, they're similar to a lot of these, these companies that basically make sure that every track you've ever made is on every digital service. So I, I got a chance to experience the real record industry as it was um, as a shop owner and then as a record label owner then as an artist then as a manager and then for all of that to sort of come to an end as I've described it wasn't specifically about the internet but it was a, there was a cold wind blowing and in a way I can frame that and at least I was sort of released um, from what became quite punishing to have all of those people to look after but without the staff anymore and yeah I um, I started screenwriting so when I was in Los Angeles I started writing scripts and I survived there by DJing I was doing Hollywood parties I was doing um, all kind of film launches I was just surviving just scraping by and because of the experience I'd had with the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society, MCPS, as they shall be known, ASCAP it's called in America, although that's a different company, um, I 
thought I'd never return to the UK. Operators are standing by. It seems like there's no tomorrow. You're going to be okay, kid. Please listen carefully. So Mark was living in LA, DJing and screenwriting. So I was curious to know what brought him back to London, and then what was his motivation for the next stage of his career. Earlier on I talked about how artists are fantasists in a way and they create and they have to have a belief in this fantasy that they're creating. I, I DJ'd for Madonna um, at the Brixton Academy and it was um, in maybe 2002 or something like that. And it was literally the hottest ticket in, um, in town. Uh, it was when she was, you know, I mean, Madonna's not the, the power she was at all now, but then it was like she'd come back, it was music and it was like, so what she did, she did a small gig and then basically made it so that that the whole of every everybody in London who was famous wanted to go. So there I am. I was on stage. I was performing with Texas, actually. You know, we're, I'm in the. I go to the VIP area at the Brixton Academy. It's literally just like the the, the biggest handful of the most famous people you could ever imagine. So it's Mick Jagger, it's Sting, it's just all of these people. The whole, you know, a few people from EastEnders comedians it was just and basically I, I, I watched and I watched everybody look at me all these famous people look at me for a split second they looked at me and they could t- they, they knew that I wasn't famous and therefore I was I was worthless to them right and then I was watching them do all this look to each other and I just I, I actually felt the completely negative energy of those people and the value systems behind it it was almost like I could get inside all of their egos and feel how corrupted they were and how their personalities had been changed by their experience of being famous. And literally from that one evening, something inside me was switched off. And that thing that was being switched off was a mixture of things. It was my own direct ego to want that more than anything else. I then realised that that's actually the last thing that I really wanted and how dirty it was. So you'd think, very strange, why the hell did you move to L.A.? Well, I moved to L.A. because I liked writing the written word as well, and I just needed to get out of the country. People there liked me. But once I got into L.A., that, that thing I was just describing around the Madonna concert became almost as if that, that little environment there in that room, in the VIP room, suddenly became a whole city, right? And I met some of the nicest people who were very friendly and helpful to me, um, with DJing and helping me out, but also at the same time, the, the incredible, incredible sense of um, 
no values and a vacuum and no cultural history. Um, and and it, very strange, I met, I, and I met my wife, uh, who's amazing, and I decided after three years of, of that that we, were, we, we, should, we should come back here and I would do Rain Christian again was on my mind. Yeah, so... Obviously, there was no Grand Central anymore. Um, the shop, I think, was was just about to go dead, you know, gone fat city. Even though I wasn't involved, it was, it was all watching things happen culturally around you. So record shops, obviously, there's a few left now, but these are the, the, the main ones that were going. You know, so I reconnected with Steve and then spent one whole summer um, collecting records around the northeast in a car with my parents. I'd go to every charity shop and every record shop and just bought maybe like 500 albums that I'd never seen before. Hunted all the sounds off them, took them to Steve. Just before I was leaving, I heard a kid, kid singing in a, in, in a Los Angeles music studio. This studio was for making adverts. Um, and it was Mark Foster, who was Foster the People. I don't know if you've heard of them. So I, before he'd become Foster the People, I sort of heard him sing and said, hey, do you want to listen to some demos? I gave him some early Rain Christian demos for this last album we did, and he, he, he did a song in 20 minutes. He was that talented. And that was the beginning of that Mercury Rising album. You know, in, in my book, the, 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 the end point of the personal story with the music is the making of that thir third Rain Christian album because it, it sort of, it meant in a way that Rain Christian, Steve had left Rain Christian after the Sleepwalking album to have a family and he was just done, I think. Um, didn't want to make music anymore. By the time he came back and said he did want to make music, Grand Central had collapsed and I'd gone to America. So it was like a delayed chance to work on this. And we worked on it for four years, that album. When we worked on it really hard and we made some absolutely beautiful music, we really did, and then we took it to Late Night Tales and they released it and it was cool. But, you know, it wasn't... It was it was a difficult thing to, to, to say, well, that's a livelihood because the way the industry had moved then is that we would have had to have taken it live to make sense of it, right? Because the sales aren't there because of the internet. And... There was Ed Harcourt, his wife, Gita Langley, Jazzy Jeff, Mark Foster, Maestro, Pete Simpson, Kate Rogers. I mean, the amount of people, there's like nine people on it. You, you can't do a live show with that many people. And then if you say, well, do your older stuff, well, that was Womack, who unfortunately is now dead. But, you know, Weber, um, you know, who'd stopped doing musical stuff some years previously so it sort of struck me head on it's like we've done this album we worked really hard on it but there's no way I'm going to kill myself putting this back out on, on, the, on the road Wake up. 
So where does that leave him now artistically? You know, I'm thinking about myself as an artist and and I start doing edits and remixes and it's almost like Grand Central stuff so like you know rare soul samples with different acapellas of hip hop over the top or Motown acapellas and I start doing what the kids are doing and you know which is making these things to give away for free on SoundCloud and I then formulated a plan that I was going to make a lot of these tracks enjoy them and in the process of making them, I was going to learn how to engineer and mix and and master my own material. Now that's because you, there's no money to pay people to do it for you unless you're, you know, going to join a, a record label and they're going to sign you and give you the budget, which is not going to never happen for me because I don't want to. You know, I don't want to be on a record label. I've always been my own record label. But also, you know, so you're not having to rely on other people and saying, oh, but can it not be like this or can mix it like that? I just thought you're going to learn. So I used the edits to learn how to get my sound how I want it as a DJ, ostensibly, because you you play tracks out and you're like, why does that one sound so much better than this one sonically? So learning about that, and I've done about, I've done a hundred now, which is more than all the music I've done as Ryan Christian and, and Mark Rose, a solo artist. And... Sometimes I forget to analyse it like that, that that time is going by and that since I joined SoundCloud, you know, I've got 100 tracks up there and, you know, I've, I've had nearly half a million plays, which is which is not a lot in comparison to you can go to, like, a music that's, you know, for a younger generation and there'll be, like, you know, 26 million plays on one track. But I stayed in the game you know what I mean and I'm still doing it because now I'm doing it more I'm doing it the same way I'm doing it because I'm an artist and I like doing it but once you do make it your job it then becomes a very difficult equilibrium in your mind about what you're trying to achieve and what your value is and is it being valued and it's a really tough journey to go through that and I think it would happen to any artist in any form of artistry a painter you know a dancer, anything, it's because it's about you. And I think as you shed the spikier parts of your ego as you get older, you then begin to see things more for what they are and then also your role in them. And I think that's a difficult and interesting challenge. But it led me to think, you know, I want to write about my experiences. So I did the autobiography and released it as a book um, and vinyl, so it's actually a 10-inch vinyl. And once I'd done that, and I started telling stories on the internet through Facebook about the history of Grand Central and DJing and Fat City and the gangs in Manchester and good things and bad things that had happened to me, and I got so much positive feedback that... Um, even though I was doing this after I'd finished the autobiography, I could see that a different way of writing was was being responded to really well. So I, I developed quite quickly in my mind the, the concept that I was going to do a novel. So once, once I'd done um, this autobiography, I thought, this is really constraining writing about yourself because all the sentences are... I've got I, me, and then, and it's like... There's no 
grand fluidity beyond that without coming across either as a name dropper or just self-important. And it's, you know, as I was talking about the shedding of ego, it's like it becomes, you know, harder to do that as you get older or to justify it. It leads me to where I am now, which is basically I've defined in my own mind that I make edits and club-based hip-hop and whatever interesting music on SoundCloud to build an entirely different fan base of DJs just purely because I like doing it and I I still like DJing. And then I'm going to develop my next career, which is writing, but then the books are always going to have music to go with them. So then I've got an excuse to make artistic music that's not got samples in it and is about me developing as an artist. So the last autobiography's music had music that referred to the history of Fat City Grand Central and me as a DJ. So in a way you could argue it was nothing particularly new. This new album that I'm doing is all electronic and it's all instrumental bar one track and it's got more references to people like Kraftwerk because it's basically it's a book about fascism, sampling, World War II, so anyway, I've suddenly found this creative area which I find far more enjoyable than anything I've done because I think I'm more naturally suited to it. It's taken me till I'm nearly 50 to realise that. So it just shows you the journey of an artist never ends, really. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's given me faith in being an artist and in, 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 by creating a new a new area to explore my mind in if you know what I mean So it's at this point we get to the title of the interview, The Current State. Having populated so many areas, I was fascinated to know his opinion on the current state of music. You could almost... There's been such a massive shift in the modern world for everybody with the internet that when you talk about the music industry it's almost like it was a canary in the coal mine in the sense that it's it's and there's a good aspect to this story if you think about it it kind of destroyed the music industry but then I, I think now that it has found an equilibrium and I think that's good I think music 
is in a good place and I think also what's happening with um, things like streaming is good as well because I think if you have if you have a, a lot of copyrights as an artist and people like them then you can earn some money for people like me and DJs and people who were part of a scene in the past that has recreated itself within things like SoundCloud I think so basically they get a lad in his bedroom in Leeds he'll take like a funk track and he'll re-edit it and people will love it and he'll, uh, it'll be free to download to me that's a bit like the, the you know the first Tony D release on Grand Central or you know the first <clears throat> releases on Grand Central where we were literally sampling the hell out of six artists not clearing it putting it on vinyl and selling it we're not we didn't make any money but we got notoriety to put the steps in to go up a perceptual ladder now I think all those steps are still there so basically someone like Chance the Rapper who's massive now and I don't really know stuff much he just did one really good song on SoundCloud and he got he went massive off it you can cut out middlemen now you don't have to have an A&R man knock on your door you know from come from the big city and saying I'm gonna you know you know I'm interested in you I'll give you a deal and then another guy come and you're like who do I trust and who do I sign to nowadays people really don't need record labels in the same way I would I think tactically the best way anyone can behave is to make your stuff have a value without anybody else's input financially or business wise so that basically if they do come to you you can say well my YouTube channel is earning me 150 grand a year why do I need to you know keep the power base with yourself the opportunities if you're bright minded intelligent and switched on are far better in the modern system than they were but other things to say that are negative about the modern system is that it, it's fast it's fast it's sped everything up so you could be really hot for a week you know we used to things used to be like on people's lips and talked about for six months or a year 15 20 years ago and it would go into a cycle and it would still be something of interest now it's like just a flood of, of, of music and content all the time to the point where you could see that really most people would be probably suffering fatigue of even knowing whether to value any of it you or I could stop doing this interview and I could play World of Tanks on my Xbox or I could go on my Instagram account, my Twitter account, I could watch YouTube, fishing videos on YouTube, I could watch some Rare Groover. Literally, can you, that's just mind-blowing amount of entertainment. I, I mean, I, I read the New York Times, BBC, LA Times, um, my football stuff. Literally, constantly during the day, I'm reading political. I never used to behave like that. I think sometimes you, you get in these situations where you have people, you know, from my generation talking about art, music and value and all that sort of stuff. And it's just a pointless discussion because it's it's happened. It's happened a while ago now and 
you have to think to yourself, if I make stuff from my heart, it will connect with people. And if it connects with people, then I've got a chance of being a paid artist. It's as simple as that. If you've got copyrights like I have that go back decades, and a lot of them, then I can help manage those and have a job to make them have income. And I'm lucky to have scraped some little, you know, tattooed little bits on the body of human musical endeavor in this country. So Rain Christian and Grand Central and all that stuff has got a little window in in the story of of UK music. I'm very lucky to have had that opportunity. I'm also lucky that I lived through an era to watch me be successful at the old model, fail at it, then watch the industry itself recreate itself and then stay in the game of going digital with my copyrights, like I told you, going to San Francisco and then basically watch the vinyl thing come back round and then make vinyl again but with a book on it so I'm doing something totally different. It's been a mad journey but you know it's not stopped and it won't stop and the objective as an artist is always the next thing you do is going to be really successful because if you don't have that fantasy and belief then you just wouldn't do it you know. This is how you flip the mic. This is how you flip the microphone. How you flip the microphone. How you flip the mic. This is how you flip the microphone. How you flip the microphone. This is how you flip the mic. The mic. Peace. Jerry the Damager. Perverted Monks. Right now. With my boys. And obviously, leading on from that question, the next one is How does he see the future? Okay, so music and the future, um, I think, I think obviously with bandwidth and Wi-Fi, it's going to mean that we're going to get to a state where, you know, just everybody will not have to own anything because they'll be able to access stream anything they want anywhere. So therefore, streaming will become pretty much everything apart from a tiny percentage who are DJs who want WAVs, which is the highest level of um, digital imprint of, of a release and the people who still want a bit of vinyl which yeah we can go on about vinyl this that and the other but really you know it's a tiny little fraction and the stuff that sells has got nothing to do with the culture we're talking about it's things like Led Zeppelin reissues and Oasis reissues come on that's all been successful anyway you know it's a different market what I've chosen to do which is to write books and have music to go with them um part of that in my pl- plotting is to make is to have a film made or a television series based on my ideas but to do it in reverse so that I actually write it and then do the music for it before it gets made visually because as I told you about my experience in Los Angeles I became very aware that basically it's a horrible impossibility and to keep yourself in that moment of thinking you're going to make films or TV I did not have the stomach for it so I focused on being a writer. I think for writers of songs and music and ideas, um, there there will always be lots of opportunities, and I think there's more now because if you think, if you go back, say, 20 years, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel Four, those are probably the only four people you could approach. Now, you could approach 
as many people as you want for as long as you want and at the end of it you can go no I'm just going to buy a good camera and make it myself put it on YouTube and if it's good it could lead to a different change in your life but that's to be taken with a strong pinch of reality where you realise that actually that's how everybody's thinking and every nine-year-old on the outskirts of Paris is thinking, the kid in Leeds is thinking, the kid in South Africa is thinking, they're making music on their phones, they're making videos, and then suddenly you realise that actually it's the technology that is the winner, not the artist, in a way. I always ask this question at the end of at the end of the interview hoping to glean some uh, nuggets of knowledge for myself but hopefully for everybody listening as well is there any advice for any upcoming artists or people that want to get into the industry that he can share yeah as regards advice for people I think um You've got to be lucky in life and people should never, ever try and dissuade you from that. But the point is, is that everyone gets chances to be lucky. It's just whether you are game ready to to rip the face off the luck. But as soon as it comes your way. So when I, when I got offered opportunities to remix The Far Side, I literally went into the studio for 30 hours and worked and came up with a great remix but it's because I had everything set up and that's the way my mind worked that remix led to another remix which basically I just tore the face off it you've got to be passionate um, strong um, positively aggressive in other words don't piss people off with aggression but you know you've got to be aggressive to the problems and solving them and making sure that the objective is met um, if you want anything, you can get it, you know. Um, and if you set out like that, you'll get somewhere close to where you want to go. So really, it is all up to the individual. And if you don't get lucky, then you're not going to get the breaks I had. But then a- another person might not have responded to the breaks in the same way. So it's a 50-50 thing, really. And some people get really lucky. And I was nicely lucky then, but, you know, then there's some people who seem to fall on their feet all the time I don't think all of it's chance you've got to know what what move to make next and a lot of it's networking you must always treat people well and you must always remember what people do and what it could fit into what your dreams and goals are Um, and stay in contact with people and be you know Find a way to be be impassioned about what you're trying to achieve so that when you're telling this person you've just met who could be useful to you, they buy into your idea. So you've got to be a salesman for your ideas. And if, if, if you really mean it, then other people... It won't be hard because other people will just respond to your honesty and passion and want to be part of it, you know? And it was there that we left it. 
we talked for about 90 minutes and uh, I felt that it was only right that we let his wife and child back in his flat and wrap it up there so I just want to say a big thank you to Mark for affording me the time and being very generous with it and with his views and his comments it was a real pleasure to do this one and uh, they sort of sometimes say don't meet your heroes and so far I've not been disappointed by the ones that I have met and especially so with Mark there's no there's kind of no history between us apart from me being a fan of his music there's no other connection than that we hadn't met before and uh, to be as generous as he was 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 fairly overwhelming for me and uh, I appreciate that a lot so thank you Mark and I hope you enjoyed listening to that as always a little bit of housekeeping at the end if you have enjoyed listening to this and the other ones they're all up on iTunes so you can get them if you subscribe via iTunes then uh, they'll all land in your iTunes and you can listen to them all if you can go on there leave a review obviously five star it if you've enjoyed it and that helps me uh, reach a wider audience which will in turn help me interview more and more people so thanks for listening I'm going to leave you with this absolutely belting track and uh, we'll see you again soon the next one is going to be DJ Format Shine.